Uh, a few weeks back, many of our Sunday school kids explored the meaning of the word Advent. Um, does anyone know, anyone here know what Advent means? Go ahead, over loud congregational participation. The Latin teacher. Can, what, what, is it, what does it mean? Coming. Yeah, coming, appearing. That's right. That's what the word uh, Advent means. It comes from the Latin word Adventus, uh, which, which simply means uh, the uh, coming or arrival. And as Christians, we, we typically celebrate... Um, this season leading up to Christmas, we call it Advent, um, because we're celebrating and anticipating Jesus' arrivals. So that our, our text this morning, it, it deals with two such Advents, uh, Christ's coming in the past and His promise to come once again in the future. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to take your Bibles, your, your copies of the Christian Scriptures, and open them to 1 John chapter 2, uh, beginning there in verse 28. And we're going to take a look at uh, 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10. I think that's on page 1022 of the Bibles provided. 1022 of the Bibles provided. John's letter was written to Christians in and around his local area of Ephesus. It was most likely written after John's gospel. John is also the author of uh, a gospel. Uh, and this letter John likely wrote toward the end of his life. Um, so that means that this letter was probably written sometime between the early 80s and the late 90s of the first century. It's a real privilege for us to have this letter from the Apostle John. John was one that walked with the Savior. He walked with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. Uh, he experienced His gracious love personally. John lived a, a full and long life as a Christian. So he knows the trials and the temptations that we face. His letter speaks powerfully and practically into our daily lives. The, the overarching purpose of this first letter from John was to reassure his believing readers that they have salvation and eternal life. And John, he, he does this in different ways. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10, John communicates what it, what it looks like, what it means to live like a child of God and how you can tell whether or not someone is living like a child of God. It is important for us to recognize at the outset of John's kind of writing that his style is not in entirely chronological or linear. Um, rather, John's writing style tends to be somewhat cyclical. So he will, um, he'll say one thing one way, he'll appear to kind of move on to a different subject, and then he'll circle back and say the same thing he said before in a, in a slightly different way. And I think we'll see that taking place even within this small section of the letter that we're studying together this morning. In fact, let's just read this section of John's letter. Read, read now, let me read for us 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. 
because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, as I'm, I'm sure you heard and read in these verses, John addresses a, a couple of different subjects in a couple of different uh, occasions in a couple of different ways. John addressed the subject of the children of God and the children of the devil. He addresses how those children live and act and what they pursue. Uh, you could say that the main thing that John focuses on in this section is actually family resemblance. Uh, spiritual children reflect the character of their spiritual fathers. So children of the devil, they, they lack love for God's people. There's no repentance in their lives. They continue the practice of sin and they rebel against God's good laws. They love all the things that Satan, their spiritual father, would be uh, d delighting in and, and loving and doing himself. Children of, of God, on the other hand, abide in Jesus. They continue to hold on to Jesus Christ in faith. They pursue righteousness and purity. They avoid the habitual practice of unrepentant sin. And they love those who are God's children. They love those who God loves. In other words, they reflect the righteousness of God and love the people that God loves. So if I had to summarize the point of the passage in a single sentence, I might actually play on a theme that we thought about last week from Psalm 115. John exhorts us to reflect who we revere. To reflect who we revere. John exhorts us to repent and reflect the God who redeemed us. In short, John's message is this. Live as God's children. Now, it would be worthwhile for us to comb through the passage and, and consider the characteristics of the children of the devil, the characteristics of the children of God, and the, the means and motivations for living as God's children. But I want to preach to you a different kind of sermon this morning. Uh, admittedly, I want to preach to you something of a thematic sermon. Uh, normally, I aim to preach expositionally, which is where I make the point of the passage, the point of the sermon. The, the message of this passage, of 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to chapter 3, verse 10, is that God's children should live and love like God. They should reflect their Father in heaven and not the devil on earth. Uh, this morning, however, we're going to take a slightly different approach to the text. Uh, given the Christmas and Advent season, I especially want us to focus in on the reason for why Jesus came. And the renewal that we will experience when he comes again. 
I want us to look backward to Jesus' first advent and forward to his second advent. And my hope in approaching the text in this way is to deepen our appreciation of Jesus' first appearance and to cultivate our longing for his second appearance. And in doing so, I trust that God will actually cultivate our desire to live as his children. So let me just point out the verses that we're especially going to focus in on this morning. Um, There should be also an insert there in your bulletin that will hopefully help you follow along. Take a look first at John chapter 3 verse 2. You see there John chapter 3 verse 2? Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. So here you see Jesus, uh, Jesus, John is talking about Jesus' second advent, his second coming. And we'll look at that actually last, uh, first the last thing to happen in redemptive history. Um, now skip down just a couple of verses to 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You see there, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So here John is giving one reason for why Jesus appeared the first time. And it's connected to what he says in the second half of verse 8. Do you see there? So read 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. And in technical terms, it's often called B, right? 8B, the second half there. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus appear? To take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. Why will Jesus appear again? So that we will be like him. So here's the outline for the rest of the sermon. It's just two points. First, look back in faith. Second, look forward in faith. Look back in faith. Look forward in faith. This Christmas season, this Advent season, I pray that this is what we would do. Let's turn and consider our first point. Look back in faith. In the passage, John gives us two reasons to look back in faith on Jesus' first coming. We celebrate Jesus' first coming because He came to take away sins. We celebrate Jesus' first coming because He came to destroy the works of the devil. Set your eyes on 1 John chapter 3, verse 5 again. Let's look at the, the first reason for Jesus' coming, according to John in this passage, to take away sin. Verse 5, read it carefully. You know... You know that He appeared to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. As we think about this verse, as we meditate on it, we must realize that John is writing to a community of believers. He says there in verse 5, You know that He appeared to take away sins. This community of believers in Jesus Christ knows for certain. And they know through the lens and the eye of faith graciously given by the Holy Spirit. They know through the testimony of eyewitnesses like John himself that Jesus came to deal with to take away sin. This is how spiritual knowledge of the truth comes. It comes through the the proclamation of apostolic testimony which John himself along with the other apostles had given. Knowledge of spiritual truth comes through the Holy Spirit attending that truth, that testimony, and effectively applying Jesus' saving work in the hearts of sinners. John's audience has come to know and believe the proclamation about Jesus. 
Have you? Have you come to know and believe? Have you come to know that Jesus appeared to take away sins? Jesus appeared. And by that, John means that God appeared in human flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. And what we're thinking about here is known as the doctrine of the incarnation. The incarnation is the event wherein the eternal Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. That's quite simply the definition that the Baptist Catechism of 1813 gives concerning the incarnation and some previous catechisms as well. It's a good definition. And actually, if you flip back to the very beginning of 1 John, if you flip back a page or so to the opening chapter of 1 John, you will see the Apostle writing about this in the opening verses of this letter in a really striking way. Just flip back and take a look at the first two verses of John's letter. Read those verses now. Uh, 1 John chapter 1, beginning there in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Among other things, the Apostle John is communicating to his readers the reality of the Incarnation. John is saying that something really happened. And that he can prove it. John begins his letter by saying, That which was from the beginning, he and others have heard, seen, and touched with their very hands. John is not only someone who merely laid his eyes on Jesus Christ, but he laid his hands on him as well. John had an actual relationship with Jesus Christ. You couldn't ask for a better eyewitness to the reality of the incarnation, could you? He had a comprehensive encounter with the Christ. John says, I've seen God incarnate. I've heard the voice of Him who was from the beginning and spoke the world into existence. I've touched eternal life because I've touched Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? But stop, stop and ask yourself this question. How could John say all of this? How could John experience all of this? John could say all of this. He could experience all of this because it actually happened in time and in space, in human history. The eternal Son of God really did appear and enter into human history. In the words of Wesley and Whitfield's Christmas Carol, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Why is it important that God appeared, that God came in human flesh in human history? It's important that God became man in human history because the first man, Adam, sinned in human history. Adam's fall in human flesh, in human history, plunged all of humanity into sin and so broke fellowship and communion with God. If that fellowship was to be restored between God and man, then that fellowship would be something that God himself would have to procure on behalf of man. And that's exactly what he did in Jesus Christ. Christian, you can be sure 
that Jesus took on flesh. It really happened. Jesus really appeared. John and Thomas and Peter and many others saw Jesus in the flesh. They touched the Lord of glory in the flesh. They heard him speak words of love. When we're talking about the nature of the incarnation, the appearance of God in the flesh in the person of Jesus, then we're talking about the creator of the world stepping into his own creation so that he can be seen and heard and touched and proclaimed. He took on flesh. He took flesh to his eternal person. And so he became truly a human person. And he did it, John says, for a reason. Turn back to 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. Do you see there? The reason, here's the reason the eternal Son of God appeared in the flesh. He did it to take away sins. Did you notice the plural there? He did it to take away sins. It's true that all mankind is, is guilty of sin in a general sense, but we all know deep down in our hearts that we are each guilty of of numerous individual sins. We, both by failing to live up to God's ways and by going against God's ways, we have committed numerous sins. And we're told that Jesus appeared to take away numerous sins in other places in Scripture too. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, we read, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Or consider Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Galatians 1.4. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. But how does Jesus take away our sins? What does John have in mind when he says that Jesus appeared to take away our sins? It's more than likely that the Apostle John uh, has in mind what John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29. Uh, earlier we read chapter uh, 1, verses 1 to 14, but if you would keep going in the Gospel of John, uh, John the Baptist, uh, he, he announces Jesus' arrival. And when Jesus steps onto the scene in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is... He's the Lamb of God. Jesus is exclusively and uniquely the Lamb of God. Just as Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, so He is also the Lamb of God. There, there is no other who can take away sins. Jesus is God's Lamb. He's God's provision for the world. Much like the, the ram caught in the thicket was God's provision for Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. More to the point... Uh, the Old Testament had much to say about the coming Lamb of God. Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover Lamb come to mind. And so does Isaiah chapter 53, where we're told that the coming Messiah would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Just like the Passover Lamb from Exodus 12 and the Messianic Lamb from Isaiah 53, Jesus was spotless. He was without blemish. Jesus was slain. His death occurred actually at the time of Passover. And Mark's Gospel even tells us that he, he died as evening or twilight was approaching. Just as the people of Israel were preserved by the blood of the Lamb. So Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and it, that it was He who freed us from our sins by His blood. Jesus, He takes away 
our sin by being the sacrificial lamb in our place. He takes away our sin by standing in our place and taking upon himself the punishment that our sins deserved. Jesus takes away our sin. He removes it from God's sight by being bruised, afflicted, and cut off out of the land of the living. It was the will of the Lord to crush him in our place. And by taking our sin upon himself, and by taking the judicial punishment for our sin, Jesus removes our sin from the sight of God. So that he no longer looks on us in wrath, but instead looks on us in love. Now Christian, think about that for a moment. Not one sin remains in the sight of God because of what Jesus has come to do to take it away from God's sight. Not one sin remains in the sight of God. He does not look on you in wrath or anger, but He looks on you in love because of Jesus. How could Jesus do this? How could He remove our sin from God's sight? He could remove our sin because as John says there in verse 5, you see it at the end of the verse, in Him there is no sin. Jesus was not only God incarnate, but He was also impeccable. He did not sin. This is the overwhelming testimony of the Scriptures. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. Not that He, just, he didn't have knowledge of sin, but that He knew no sin. He didn't participate in it. He didn't commit sin. Even though he committed no sin, because he was both fully God and fully man, he was and still is able to sympathize with us. That's what we learn from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. There we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then later, the writer of the Hebrews writes this of Jesus in chapter 7, verse 26. For indeed it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And the Apostle Peter would also add this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then Tying this back to Jesus, taking away our sin, two verses later, Peter would write this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus had to both be incarnate and impeccable to take away our sins. He had to be our representative in order to be our Redeemer. And He had to be sinless in order to be our Savior. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or even if you're a Christian, you understand yourself to be a Christian. I wonder if this sounds like incredibly good news to you. It should, because it is. Friends, this is 
incredibly good news. We were all made in God's image, made to, to love Him and serve Him and worship Him. But just like our first parents, just like the first man, Adam, we've all sinned against God. We've decided to live our own way rather than God's way. Because we have sinned, because we've sinned and against an eternal and infinite God, our sin deserves an eternal and infinite punishment. Because of our sin, we all stand in danger of God's just wrath and punishment of our sin forever in hell. We need someone to take away our sin from God's sight. This is why we need the Lamb of God to take away our sins. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did this by living a life we have not lived. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He never once sinned. And yet He died on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus took the sins and the punishment due to them upon Himself. He died bearing the wrath of God, the punishment for all of those who would have returned from their sins and believe in Him. And in His death, Jesus satisfied the just requirements of God's law. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the grave, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners as the sacrificial lamb was acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus invites you to believe in Him. To trust in Him. That He has taken your sins away from God's sight. By living the life that you've not lived. By dying the death that you deserve. And by being raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, I want to urge you to turn from your sin. To believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Who takes away your sins from God's sight. John tells us that Jesus appeared in human history. In human flesh to take away our sins. But He gives another reason too. Look at the second half of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. You see it there? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Now notice in this verse the similar but subtle expansion of our understanding of Jesus. On the similar side, we have that same language of appearing... But the subtle expansion in John's teaching about Jesus is that Jesus is who? He's the Son of God. This is the first time in his letter that John uses the full title, Son of God, for Jesus in his letter. And I think that this is significant. It's significant because this is an especially loved title by the Apostle John. Uh, he, he used... Uh, the title, this title for Jesus, Son of God, over 25 times in his gospel. But this, he waits until the third chapter to use this title of Jesus. And he uses it here in connection, I think this is significant, in connection with his appearing for the purposes of destroying the works of the devil. In the, in the Old Testament, the Son of God, this title was often used in connection with Israel's kings. So a son in the ancient Near Eastern world was a, a duly authorized representative of his father. So applying this to Israel's kings meant that the kings of Israel were to be God's representatives on earth. Part of their calling was to carry out the will and way of God. And by the time we come to the New Testament, um, we, we see that this title was applied to Jesus. As I said, John uses it, uses it a lot in his gospel. Belief in Jesus as the Son of God was one of the main reasons that John wrote his gospel. So he, he writes in John chapter 20, verse 31, But these things are written 
So that, here's the reason, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Still, there's more, there's more about Jesus serving as the Son of God and being the Son of God. Perhaps you'll recall from Luke's Gospel, from Luke chapter 3, verse 38 to be specific, that Adam was called Son of God. Sadly, Adam, the first Son of God, sinned. He sinned because, as the first half of verse 8 says, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. One of the works that the devil uh, is committed to is to deceiving mankind and leading man into sin. That's a deadly work that the devil has been doing from the beginning. But Jesus, as we see here, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is the last Adam, we learn from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. Jesus, as the last Adam, as the true and promised Son of God, destroys Satan's work. And as I said, this was promised. Just run your mind back to Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning, the fall of mankind. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we read these words of God speaking to Satan, speaking to the devil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise of offspring, the promise of a son of Adam who would one day crush the head of the serpent. And John is telling us that Jesus has come to do just that, to destroy the works of the devil, to crush his head. Well, what is the devil's work? What has Jesus destroyed? What is Jesus destroying? We know from Genesis 3 that Satan's a liar and a deceiver. In Zechariah chapter 3, we learn that Satan is an accuser of the righteous. He tries to, to prosecute a case against God's people by hounding us and telling us that we're not good enough to stand in God's presence. And he's actually right about that. On our own, we're not good enough to stand in God's presence. That's why we trust in Jesus. We trust in an alien righteousness, a righteousness that not a, that's not our own, but that comes from Jesus. Because Jesus lived a righteous life for us. So we have Jesus' righteous robes. In the Gospels, especially in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4, we learn that Satan or the devil is, is a tempter. He tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And since we know that no servant is greater than his master, we too are certainly tempted by the devil. Jesus came to destroy the power of Satan's temptation. Since Jesus has set his people free from the bondage and dominion of sin through the work of the Spirit of Christ in our lives, tem temptation has lost its dominating power. Jesus has destroyed the dominating power of Satan's temptations. One of the clearest declaration of Jesus' defeat and destruction of the devil is found in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. If you can, keep, keep one finger here and flip back a couple of pages to the, to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, uh, beginning there in verse 14. Um, it's on page 1002, I believe, that the Bible's provided. Hebrews chapter 1 was the setup, of course, to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, in chapter 1, we're told that Jesus is superior to everyone and everything, and so we must not neglect so great a salvation found in Him. If Jesus is so great, then there's actually this danger of thinking that He can't relate to us. But in Hebrews chapter 2, 
we're told not only that he can relate, but that he can dominate and destroy the works of the devil. Follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. In other, in other words, Jesus took on flesh and blood. That, here's the reason, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus had to take on flesh. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here we see our solidarity with Jesus and Jesus' solidarity with us. He shared in flesh and blood in order to defeat the devil. His death was the key to actually destroying the devil. Isn't that strange? That place of seeming defeat was actually the place of Christ's victory over the devil. In death he dealt with sin. In his death he made atonement for sin and put us back into relationship with God. And, and before we turn back to, to 1 John, let's just note a few things about Jesus. What do you see about Jesus in these verses? What do you learn about Him? You see there in verse 14, He shares in our flesh and blood. Verse 14, He destroyed the devil. He's a deliverer of those who are in bondage. Verse 15, He helps those who have faith like Abraham. He helps us. Verse 16, He's a high priest. He's our, our mediator. Verse 17, He serves God. Verse 17, he made propitiation for sin. In other words, he, um, he satisfied God's wrath against our sin. Verse 17. He's able to help the tempted. Have you been tempted? Jesus can help you. Verse 18. Praise God. This is why the Son of God appeared. To destroy the works of the devil. Okay, go ahead and turn back to 1 John chapter 3. If you lost your, your place there, that's on page 1022 of the Bibles provided. 1 John chapter 3. Now, we must also be careful here. Yes, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, but that's not the whole story, is it? The devil has been defeated, but he's still dangerous and deadly. We still know his temptation, don't we? This is why James writes in James chapter 4, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And did you hear that James commanded God's people to resist the devil? If he commanded us to resist the devil, it must be because by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his destruction of the works of the devil, we can now resist the devil and he will flee from us. Similarly, the Apostle Peter tells us, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that we're to be sober-minded, we're to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. His works of blinding and deceiving the people of God have been destroyed, but he's still dangerous and deadly. He's prowling around like a lion, 
Well, he's a mortally wounded lion, but his teeth are, are still sharp, his claws are still long, and so we best not go near. We can and should be sober-minded and watchful. We should be on guard against his schemes. The devil led Adam and Eve and all their posterity into sin and death. But Jesus Christ leads God's people out by his righteous life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection from the dead. It's the reason he appeared. And there are two main applications that we should take away from these glorious truths. And you could summarize them like this. Rejoice. And be righteous. Rejoice and be righteous. First, rejoice. Rejoice that Jesus really has appeared to take away your sins from the sight of God. Rejoice that Jesus really has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. This Christmas, look back in faith on all that Jesus has accomplished in his first coming and rejoice. Dear Christian, revel in your rescue from sin and Satan. Revel in your redemption and in your Redeemer. In the words of John Mason Neal that we sang earlier, good Christian men and women rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave, for Jesus Christ was born to save He was born to save us from sin and Satan. So rejoice. Rejoice and be righteous. John is writing this because he wants believers in Jesus Christ to be righteous like Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who clothes us in His righteousness. It is Jesus who makes us righteous in God's sight. It is Jesus who, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, enables us to live righteous lives And so we must repent of unrighteousness and positively pursue righteousness. Rejoice and be righteous as you look back in faith on the first coming of Jesus. Jesus appeared in human history some 2,000 years ago. He came once, and this little letter from John and other portions of the New Testament tell us that Jesus is coming again. And so we look forward in faith to His second coming. And this is our second, much shorter point. Look forward in faith. This Christmas, we not only look back to the time when Christ came, we also look forward in faith to the time when He will come again. And as we begin to think about this, read 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Because Jesus Christ appeared to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil, because Jesus has poured out His Holy Spirit upon His people, sinners like us, that is to say, Spiritual orphans have been welcomed into God's family. And we who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are God's children now, at this very moment. Do you see? Do you behold? Do you behold the wonder 
full. The beautiful, abundant love of God that He has lavished on sinners in bringing us to faith in Jesus Christ. This love is something God has given. He has freely given His love to us. This isn't something we've earned from Him or tricked Him into doing. God has given His love to sinners. Uh, in his uh, book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, uh, he, Uncle Screwtape uh, writes, uh, he's a, a, a demon uh, that kind of writes and looks down upon Christians. Uh, Uncle Screwtape uh, writes, he says that God loves to make all these disgusting little human vermin into sons. And to put it in the Apostle John's language, God loves to make all these disgusting little children of the devil children of God. That's what God is doing in His love when He, he regenerates our cold, callous, dead, wicked hearts. It's only because He loved us and regenerated us that we can be His children and live as His children now. And notice too that according to verse 2, we are still waiting to grow up into glory. For what we have or what we will be has not yet appeared. Why haven't we grown up into glory? Why haven't we been perfected? Well, the answer is because Jesus has not yet appeared a second time. That's what happens when He appears again. Therefore, we wait and long and look forward to His second appearance. The reality is there is one final scene to take place in redemptive history. God's children have been made alive in their hearts. They have experienced an inward resurrection of the soul, but they will experience an outward resurrection of the body. They will one day be received into full heavenly glory. That's what John's getting at there in verse 2. When Jesus comes again, when He appears from heaven a second time, He will appear in the physical glorified body that He possesses now. And when He appears at His second coming in His resurrected body, our bodies will be changed to glorified resurrected bodies too. In John's words, we will be like Him. In the words of the Apostle Paul, the perishable will put on the imperishable. Just as He has done. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. Our weak bodies, our bodies which break down, and suffer decay in this life will be made powerful bodies just as Jesus' body is powerful. No more, no more cancer. No more flu. No more blindness. No more heart disease. No more lung deficiencies. No more genetic conditions. No more sickness. No more suffering. No more crying. No more arthritis, no more pain. We will be like Him as He is now when He appears. Do you want Him to appear? Come, Lord Jesus. We will have the body that He has. And we will finally have the purity that He has. In glory, we will not be able to sin. Don't you want to not be able to sin anymore? 
the second coming of Jesus Christ, then, is a motivation for living holy lives, for pursuing holiness in this life. Look at verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself. We don't have this hope apart from Him. We only have it in Him. And because we have Him, we have this hope. Because we have Him, we pursue purity. We pursue holiness. We long to be there in that holy place with the Holy One. So we live holy lives today. We long to be there in that holy place where we see His holy face. Does the return of Jesus Christ motivate you, Christian, to live a holy life? If it doesn't, it should. Let it. And there's another reason that it should. It's basically this. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. If we do not abide in Christ, pursue holiness and persevere in the faith, then at the second coming we will be put to shame, John says. That's what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Do you see that verse? 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Now, John may be saying that if we haven't been abiding in Jesus Christ, then at His coming we'll be ashamed of our spiritual lives. But I don't think that's likely. Abiding in Jesus is having faith in Him. And all those who have faith in Jesus have an unshakable confidence that they will be received into glory at His coming. What John is saying is connected to the shame that the prophet Daniel spoke about at the end of his book. In Daniel chapter 12, Verses 1 to 2. In speaking about the return of the Messiah and the day of judgment, Daniel said this. Listen to what he says about shame in particular. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, and everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, at the return of Jesus Christ, the bodies of the children of the devil will be raised out of their graves and sentenced together with their souls to everlasting shame and contempt. And John is saying this coming judgment ought to motivate believers to persevere in the faith, to abide in Jesus and live as God's children. Abide in Jesus now so that you will abide with Him for all eternity. John wants his readers to continually fight in faith and turn away from sin. Indeed, those who really are God's children will continue to abide in Him and have confidence that is coming. Why? Because of what John says in chapter 3, verse 9. Skip over chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice, a habitual practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. God's seed refers to the promised Holy Spirit. He's the one who throughout the whole New Testament 
we're told, abides in God's people. He's the one who takes up residence in our heart, unites us with the risen Christ, and enables us to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. He's also the one to whom John referred to as having anointed believers in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. With the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts, it's impossible for God's children to keep on sinning. And by this, John does not mean that Christians will never sin again or that they are perfect or that they can reach perfection in this life. Our own, our own experience just this past week, maybe even this morning, militates against that. Right? We still sin, sadly. But what John is saying is that with the Holy Spirit abiding within us, we cannot continue on in the practice of sin, in pursuing habitual, unrepentant sin. In God's kindness, the Holy Spirit will lead us to repentance, grow us in holiness, and so reflect the very character of our Heavenly Father. This is what we pursue as we wait for Jesus to come again and make us like Him. So we look forward in faith for the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We remember that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. We live this day looking forward in faith for Him to return. We live this day straining by God's grace to be what we will one day be in glory. And we remember that above all, we will get to see Him. We will get to see the Savior who came for us and for our salvation. We will get to see the Savior who humbled Himself and took on flesh. We will get to see the Savior who suffered temptation and affliction from the devil and yet did not sin. We will get to see the Savior who was slandered. We will get to see the Savior who was spit upon and mocked and beaten and betrayed. We will get to see the Savior who was crucified and buried. We will get to see the Savior who conquered the grave. We will get to see the Savior who appeared to take away our sins. We will get to see the Savior who appeared to destroy the works of the devil. We will see Him and we will be like Him. So this Christmas, brothers and sisters, look back in faith on all that He has accomplished and look forward in faith for all that He will accomplish. Let's pray together.